Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we talk a comic or graphic novel of our choice. I'm your host, Anne. Uh, I'm Dallas. And I'm Lexus, who forgot to unmute my microphone. <laughs> well, as long as we're making dramatic pauses between every line. Exactly. Drama. <gasps> And today on the Comics Collective, we will be talking about the comic book Judas by Jeff Loveness and Jacob Rubelka. And just so you know, um, yeah, we're talking Bible school today. It is Saturday morning for us, but it might as well be Sunday morning for you because we are taking you to school. It's going to be... Shabbat Shalom! Exactly. Whatever that means. We're going to be <laughs> teaching you a lot of fun things about religion, ourselves, and trauma. It's going to be fantastic. Um... Yeah, it's 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 gonna be wonderful. For anyone who does not know, the comic book Judas is about the biblical character Judas and um, basically everything that happens after he betrays Jesus and after he dies. This is a story where literally no one is alive, so a lot of lot of fun things happen. At least you don't have to worry about your favorite character dying, right? Because they're already there. Um, yeah, we get to see the journey of Judas through hell, and it's a really interesting story that talks a lot about forgiveness and um faith and it's it's i think it's a really really interesting read i'm going into this though completely blind because i have no idea what either one of my co-hosts thinks about this book because i believe it's the first time through for both of them so i read it once before i loved it i want to pass it on to lexi first lexi what did you think about the comic book judas honestly i really enjoyed this book i feel like for me it was a really interesting look into the other side of a very well-known story for a lot of people. I mean, I would be lying if I said we weren't raised in our household to absolutely have this story memorized mm -hmm. of um, how Judas betrays Jesus in the end and results in Jesus's death and crucifixion. But we never really get to know why. I feel like for me, I feel like it was never really explained as to why Judas was the one. Why he was the quote unquote bad guy in the Bible. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. and so I feel like this was the perfect comic explanation. Like, I feel like it was a really interesting lens to take, and I actually really enjoyed it. Awesome. Loving some Bible fan fiction. It's it's great. Dallas, passing it over to you, because I know you have a couple thoughts on religion occasionally from time to time. Yeah, so, a few. Um, I thought this book was very interesting. I found a lot of the core questions about the relationship of like narrative to the Bible that the author was bringing up mm -hmm. this idea that Judas was just cast as the bad guy in the story and how that was wrong. Very interesting because it skirted around something that I'll talk about later in this episode. But the fact that like these are narratives that are constructed to teach us things rather than historical mm -hmm. retellings. I think sometimes our perception of history is a little skewed because we don't realize that historians of the past were often more interested in creating a narrative than they were in relaying facts. I mean, that's still true today, but in our current day, we have a lot of importance on like what really happened, even though we get a lot of propaganda folks. And that just wasn't a priority in the past. Like we'll get into this more, but the gospel writers were telling the narrative of Jesus. 
they were saying, all right, we're going to take everything mm-hmm. we have and we're going to streamline it into a narrative that gets the points across and a narrative needs a bad guy. And so I thought Judas was very interesting because it talked about the fact that Judas was cast as the bad guy. But in the comic book, it definitely operated under the understanding that the Bible was like the unaired um, recollection from God's hand of how this happened instead of just a, mm-hmm. a rewritten version of events. And I found that very interesting. And I think there's some interesting theological questions brought up about how Jesus could relate to humanity, how God could expect what he did from someone like Abraham, what Jesus did between his death and the resurrection that again, we can get into, but overall for about the first half of this comic book, I was like, man, it seems like you you're angry at Christianity and like, you're allowed to be angry at Christianity, Mm -hmm. but I'm not resonating a ton with this. It's like, I, I don't feel like your argument really holds a lot of weight when you start to understand the nuances of the biblical text. And then the back half it surprisingly got like more fanficy, but much more heartfelt. And I found myself resonating a lot with how this story ended up casting Judas. And again, we'll get into this later. It actually, I don't know if this is on purpose or not. It plays into some theology from first Peter that I have always found very interesting. And yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts. I thought this was a fun comic book and I definitely am excited to put on my Bible scholar hat when called upon but frankly i'm really interested in what you two have to say what you have to think because sometimes i only view it through bible scholar eyes and Mm -hmm. i guess before we roll forward i would love to talk a little bit about something that you learn very early on in biblical scholarship and it's it's called a Mm -hmm. hermeneutical circle and it's this idea it comes from this guy named heidegger and in his research he found that he was completely unable to escape his bias and he kept wanting to escape that bias. He wanted to be a good scientist that was looking at things objectively, but he found time and time again in matters of religion in matters of humanities, you can't really do that. You can't escape who you are, where you came from. And so he then decided, okay, the only way I can do good scholarship then is to identify my bias be upfront with it so people know going into my work what my biases are and what they can take or leave. And I'll present information just mm-hmm. the best I can. And I think that is a really important process when you're working with something as sensitive and important to people as the Bible or any other religious text. And so just out of the gate, my bias, I I believe much of modern scholarship about the Bible. I believe that this is something that was created for the purpose of stoking religious fervor years after the actual events occurred. But I do feel like it has held spiritual significance in my life. And both of those things can exist Mm -hmm. at the same time. This was a book that was written for a purpose. That purpose was to bring people closer to, in the case of the Old Testament, Um, Adonai, the Lord of the Old Testament, and in the case of the New Testament, which we'll be talking about largely today, to the realization that Jesus Christ is the Savior of mankind, according to that text. And those are truths that I hold dear to me. I haven't come across anything in scholarship that has taken those feelings away from me. And I know some people feel like both can exist at the same time. And I am interested 
and towing that line as we talk today, bringing up questions of authorship, questions of legitimacy of narrative, while also talking about how these narratives impact me on a spiritual level. So that's kind of my hermeneutical circle mm-hmm. going into this. And like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, this will be a little bit Sunday schooly. And if that's not your vibe, <laughs> come back next week. If you're curious, stick around. I'm mm-hmm. excited. Yeah. I think one of the things I've been most excited about for this show is just to to pick Dallas's brain about it a little bit because he knows a lot more about this the subject than most people that I know. And so I'm very, very interested to hear what you have to say. And just to break into kind of my bias a little bit and kind of to give anyone who's listening right now just a little bit of like an affirmation of like, why am I here? This is usually a show about comics. We will be talking about this comic from that comic perspective. We'll analyze it just the same as we do every other. I just think that all, all of us here have different experiences with religion and faith. And we're all at... um we all bring something unique to this and I'm very excited to explore that a little bit. And just uh, as a reminder, uh, I'm talking about my bias a little bit. I grew up as someone who was very un, I want to say not against religion, but very wary of it because I did not really get into my own faith. I wasn't taken to church until maybe I was like 10 years old by my parents. And my first experience with religion was my neighbor telling me I was going to go to hell as we were playing in a sandbox when I was like five years old. Um, It's growing up in a small religious town where it's like my experience with religion and what we talked about at my church was so drastically different than what it felt like everyone else did and what they talked about at their churches it gave me a perspective of looking at this from the outside and being like, how can two so totally separate and disparate views of the same religion exist? And it was something that as I grew up and I, you know, started to be more aware of the influence that the church has had over the years and influencing a lot of um, really awful policies and, um, disparaging a lot of minorities across the the centuries it was something that really really put me off and when i came out myself as someone who was queer it was something i just kind of turned my back on completely and it was actually talking to dallas and listening to a lot of um podcasts that he suggested and diving in where it's like having that affirmation that i've had all along where it's like something here must have influenced all of this because there's there was such a disparity between what my mom always told me that religion was versus what other people were telling me that religion was. So it's something that I think everyone really benefits from talking about just because it affects all of our lives in some way and the way that the world has been shaped around us. And I still think that there are good lessons here, even if sometimes the book they come from can be used for really bad things. So that we will be diving into a lot of those, you know, more personal matters, more personal views, but this is still primarily a comic book podcast. And we will talk so much about the wonderful, wonderful story here. I'm really excited to talk about the art too, because I think Jacob Rebelka was absolutely just slamming it home in this book. It is one of the prettiest books I've ever looked at. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from in reference to where I am currently. I'm, I, I came a long way. I'm currently on my church's council, which is weird as hell. It's like, I'm just the the gay trans woman who's like, yeah, I'm the secretary. What's up? I take notes. 
I take notes with glittery pens. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's really impressed there with my iPad skills because it's everyone there is older and they're like, wow, this is incredible. They're like, you can take pictures and put them on the, the minutes. That's so cool. You're the you're a tech whiz. I'm like, magic. yep. <laughs> this is sorcery. Thank you. This is old Bible magic. Lexi, do you have any bias you want to talk about before we continue the episode? Oh, boy. Do you got six and a half hours? Because I could really dish it out. <laughs> um, but I would be for sure lying if I said I didn't have any. Because I I feel like for me, I'm actually for the first time in a really long time in a good place about it. I feel like I'm not mm-hmm. as hateful as I used to be in the past three, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously I was raised in the same household as Dallas and we attended the same church, but I feel like for me, I had a very different experience. And mm-hmm. of course, I'm not sure if that's just my perception or just my individual experience because everybody has a different experience with right. their life. Um. And I will be the first to say that me growing up in the church and a lot of the experiences I had were amazing. I met some amazing people and I had amazing experiences with them. And I wouldn't change that for anything in the world. I wouldn't trade that for any other experience. Like the amount of times at girls camp where we were in the middle of the woods and I convinced one of the girls we were dying, I wouldn't change that for the whole world. She might also be an atheist at this point. I don't know. I convinced <laughs> her that she was going to get killed by a snipe. But anyway, um, I feel like I also had a lot of negative experience at the hands of older members of our faith, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I had time and time again in my later teenage years of being a member where I was chastised for strange reason after strange reason. I remember – One time I got called into our bishop's office one Sunday afternoon and I had no idea why I was going in there. And he was like, hey, I know that one of our young teenage boy missionaries that's – or men that's preparing to go on a mission likes to look at you. So you need to dress differently so you can not distract him from going on this mission. And I was like, WTF? Uh, okay, sorry that my knees are distracting from the Sunday school lesson because also it was church. I wasn't, I wasn't, in my opinion, mm-hmm. dressed any differently than you would be. And so it's just experiences like that where I would time and time again come back to why am I the reason for someone else's shortfallings? Mm-hmm. And I feel like our doctrine and also – And it's also so funny to me because I feel like I'm in the place now where I realize it's not the church that necessarily um, puts that up on a pedestal, that behavior. It's the people who are misconstruing their doctrine to fit their agenda Mm -hmm. of like, oh, I read this thing, so now you can't do this. But it just was things like that where I feel like I felt so attacked by crusty, dusty old men. I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. Like, why would I want to live my life 
to please you, to please what you have your image of. And so I feel like the last couple of years after I graduated high school, I for sure was in that like, I hate everything about this and I don't want to hear it. And I I will be the first to honestly pat pat my my cute little mother on the back. Bless her. I love her with my whole heart. She is someone who I feel like has wonderful faith. Like she is a very wonderful woman. She always does her best with her church callings and goes out of her way to always support all of us in our in our growing up with our church. And she really watched me go through like the I hate this situation. And she let me, which was something I wasn't expecting from her. Um, When I got to my senior year of high school, she was like, okay, I trust you. I trust that you know how to make your own decisions. And so she let me have my figure it out time. And so I don't know. It's just it's just so interesting to see how different people will do their own agenda within mm-hmm. churches. I feel like everybody could have a little mini experience like that, but oh, yeah. that's just me and my bias. <sighs> Thank you for sharing that, Lexi. And go oh. mom Taylor. That's awesome. Yeah. Proud of her. Yeah. So with with all that out of the way, kind of giving you all the introduction to our own experiences, I want to move into first talking about this comic strictly as a comic, trying to focus as much as we can on just the characters, the art, the themes within it. And then we will move into some of the deeper, um, more theological aspects of it as the episode goes on. And then afterwards, if that isn't your kind of thing, you can always skip to the questions. We have some fun ones for this issue. So hope you'll stick around for that. But with that being said, this is a pretty fast comic to read. I think I took like 15, 20 minutes to go through the whole thing, only four issues. And it's just, it's, it's so, so wonderful. I have a couple of questions with this one. I just want to know what everyone thought about one, the characters in this book two the themes that really start to, to impact around like um, that final issue of um, forgiveness and acceptance and just the really interesting turns that it takes. And also I think one of the bigger questions that I wanted to ask, because I'm sure that plenty of people who are listening to this episode want to know is, do you think that this is a story that someone who does not consider themselves a Christian can still read and enjoy? Does it have that ability to reach beyond and have anything to offer to people that aren't invested in this biblical tale? say yes well to to that last part um i feel like for me even though i don't resonate with these types of stories i still enjoyed it i feel like it created at least even if it wasn't necessarily the right image that a lot of people want to think of this story in, i feel like it created a good conversation mm-hmm. like it created a good thought process in my mind like oh i have never considered this type of situation before how would this be and also, I mean, you mentioned it before, but the artwork in this comic is some of the most beautiful I've ever seen. I love the depictions of the characters, their stories. Um, 
the depiction of hell, which is mm-hmm. kind of comical. I think it's very beautiful. The character, <laughs> like the the monsters down there, I'm like, this is very interesting to me. And it mm-hmm. is a quick read. And honestly, I feel like I feel like it's something great to read to kind of expand your thinking, your thinking as well. Like it's just something that not a lot of people would have. I I want to say. I think this book definitely plays on the assumption that the reader will have at least a passing understanding of the characters from the New Testament with mm-hmm. Judas, Jesus, and uh, Lucifer. It it does a good job of wearing its sources on its sleeve. Like it'll make an illusion and then it'll tell you where that illusion came from. But the actual relationships mm-hmm. between Judas, Jesus, and Lucifer, the three main characters while they're touched on in this text, I think there is an expectation that you'll bring with you an understanding that like you have your good guy, your bad guy, and then you have like the traitor in that little triad. And then because so much of this book is built on subverting whether or not the traitor is in the wrong, right? So if you don't understand that Judas is a traitor, mm-hmm. I think that might be difficult. The book definitely tells you, but I definitely think a lot of that emotional punch comes from subverting your own expectations rather than subverting the book's expectations. Because like pretty quickly, the book is working to subvert Judas as the bad guy in this book. So mm-hmm. I think you're kind of expected to <clears throat> believe Judas as a bad guy coming into this. Something that is really interesting Um one of the only stories of Judas in the New Testament that doesn't have to do with his betrayal is is touched on here when the woman anoints Jesus's feet with ointment and Judas in the text of the New Testament is the one that says, couldn't we have sold that and had money to then give to the poor? And because Judas, his job within the apostles was as the person who carried the purse He was the guy that was in charge of their money, something that isn't talked a lot about within at least my religious tradition and in the churches I've gone to that aren't my own. I think sometimes we skim over the fact that Jesus was a homeless man living off of the kindness of the people that followed him. After he was cast Mm -hmm. out of Galilee early in his ministry, he no longer had a home. Uh, Nazareth, not Galilee. He toured around the Galilee, but like he lived with Peter for a time in Peter's home. He lived with Mary and Martha for most of the rest of these three years. And so his tribe of followers, when Jesus said, come follow me, they also were giving up their worldly possessions. So money was a tight resource. You need Jesus acknowledged in his teachings, like you need money to live, like render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. He understood that he wasn't going to truly be able to separate himself from money in the way that he wanted to. But so much of his teachings were about the evil of money and the evil of caring about and loving money. And so there's this interesting juxtaposition where I mean, this isn't just a complaint that Judas has brought up. I've heard this in modern religions is, well, why don't religions get rid of all their finery and donate all their money to the poor, right? 
if that's what you are wanting to do. Mm -hmm. And so it's an interesting question from Judas. And, but it's also within the text that it's presented in where Jesus keeps talking about how money and God can't both be served. It's an interesting first allusion to the fact that Judas is going to be the one that is in opposition to Jesus. Like he sides in that moment with money. And within the narrative of that gospel, I think it's Matthew, but don't quote me on that. That is an early fun illusion. And so in to see that played into this book made me happy, even if it was largely to be like, Judas, you made a great point. I was like, oh, that's either way. He did make a compelling point. And that's something worth talking about. But it's fun to see that character and how he plays out in the new testament um i i might what did you think of judas's argument in this that it was unfair for him to be cast as the villain in this story to be predetermined to be the villain um and then what did you think of the subversion of that where this book says this is why you were the one that had to fall because there was a specific need we needed Mm -hmm. from you um because I definitely have some thoughts, but mine will tumble down into a, a rabbit hole of talking a little bit about like the synoptic problem of the Gospels. And I don't want to just like monologue. So I want <laughs> I want to hear from you two about that. You personally, from your own religious upbringing and perspective, do you feel like Judas was predestined to be a traitor to Jesus? Do you believe he was someone who just betrayed Jesus? Do you like what do you think about Judas? And what do you think about what this book is saying about the character Judas? And you go first and then I'll go second. Yeah, I don't, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm kind of just going along with it for the the benefit of this specific story. Because it, it's one of the things that always made me a little uncomfy with the idea of religion is the idea of like predestination. Where it's like, oh, well, where you're going has already been determined. Like heaven or hell, you got, God's already got got you on the checklist. He knows where you're going. And to me, that always destroyed the idea of like, well, then what's the the point of free will? If that's, if that's already been decided for you, where are you going to go? And what's the point about talking about sins? If like, no matter what you do, that's already been, you're, you're already on the set. You're already on the line. You know, you're, you're in the queue. You just got to wait your turn. That was one of the, like, I understand it makes you, I think, really empathize with Judas because I feel like that's a not particularly controversial take where it's like, I don't really like the idea that what I do doesn't really matter and that I'm just going to end up where I am no matter what. I think that's something that, you know, anyone would be really frustrated with. And I think it really builds up Judas's humanity at the beginning, which is something that I really, really think this book does so well is just I think it really echoes a lot of the same feelings that most people have, whether you're religious or not, just dealing with the idea of faith and something extra where it's like thing, I want something to make sense. And if it doesn't, I'm frustrated that it doesn't. And I know it's why a lot of people fall out of faith because they're like, they're told one thing and they're like, well, that doesn't seem fair. That seems like some flat out bullshit. I don't know why anyone else would believe this or follow this i'm i'm out count me out i'm not i'm not drinking the the punch i'm i'm gone and i think that does a lot because i think the the way this book succeeds is really building upon frustration 
not just Judas's, but also really tapping into the frustration of the audience too, because everyone, I think everyone's had moments where their faith has been challenged and you've either decided to stay strong in it or you decided like, it's not for me. And both I think are completely and totally valid. And it's just, it's, I think a basic human experience that it really pulls into to make the, the ultimate theme and message of the story land with anyone. And I think that's one of the reasons for like, even if you only have like a passing to answer my question earlier, I think only if you have only like a passing understanding of the, the text here, I think there's still a lot that will thematically land and stretch across borders of denomination. Um, I've had people, I've had friends of mine who are either Jewish or atheist read this book and be like, yeah, I still really liked it. It's like, I don't necessarily agree with the theological points, but I liked the themes. I liked the, the emotion. I liked it. I liked the message. So it's, I think it's, it serves a good point because it taps on one of those things where it's like, this is something that everyone has thought about at some point. And so we're going to kind of try to drive that home as much as possible. I agree. And I feel like when I was reading this and thinking about like, oh, you were precast as the villain. Um, it brought up a lot of like internal questions about, myself and my past as a member of growing up a member of the church. And I, it was so interesting to me because I hadn't really been able to put it into words, but like I felt for years that I was cast as the villain of a lot of people's stories around me, Mm -hmm. which is very, it was a very interesting, like aha moment of like, Oh, I was my mom's personal villain for 17 years. Like this was a little bit of a interesting internal look on myself. And so, and I agree, like I don't like the thought of like, oh, you are predestined to come and question everyone's faith around you. Like that's unsettling. Like why would you wish that upon anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I agree. Like I don't think that that's – cool <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is um, not cool god not, it's not cool not chill. yeah we just want to live our life and mm-hmm. i don't know but like we even get to see in the comic like i how many four three four four different um people of time characters in the in the, the grand story um kind of who are predetermined to be villains. Like we hear about Pharaoh, we have Goliath, um, Jezebel, and then um, Lot's wife. Like Lot's we wife have these. Makes me angry. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. And like, yeah, we have these. Like, oh, they had to have this purpose in this story, and this is where they're at now. And I'm just like that. Just rubs me the wrong way. I'm like, oh, well, why? Like, the thought of, like, why would you think that they have to be cast in that way? Because also they could just be bad people. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, it's just it's a lot of different thoughts to have. And I feel like, for me, it's not something I necessarily think about a lot. So it was interesting to have it kind of spoon-fed to me. Be like, think about this. Try Here. Try that. <laughs> so, I don't know. I feel like it definitely is 
a concept that will raise a lot of internal questions for someone. I think that was one of the things that like really put me off religion initially when I'm like, I I had my first conversation with like my parents about like gay people and queer people. My parents were always just like, well, that's just who they were born to be. And everyone's like, well, that's just who they were born to be. I'm like, well, I have my entire school system telling me that they're going to hell for it. So you're telling me that one, God made them gay. And two, God also says, well, that's, that's pretty messed up, but you're going to hell. Sorry about that. And it's why I think the story of Lot's wife always bugs me too, where it's like, that is such a small and simple and human thing that she did. And you're telling me that she's now just the main art attraction down in hell. That's messed up. I was, I was kind of upset though, that at the end where it's like Lucifer gathered the, um, the dark Avengers that she wasn't there. Cause I kind of like the image of someone of some demon, just having to waddle over the statue to look at Jesus, like all judgmentally. And I'm like, that would have been that would have been funny. <laughs> I had to go back. I'm like, I I need to see her there because that mental image is just is too good to pass up. But yeah, it's it's a lot. Religion is definitely not um, simple. Passing it over to Dallas. So the Bible is a hodgepodge hypocritical mess because it is not a singular text. I understand that it is presented to all of us as a singular text. If you are Jewish, you get the whole Hebrew Bible handed to you. And it's even presented in a way that's like beginning to end. We're starting with creation. We're ending with Malachi, the last of the great prophets. And it's in roughly chronological order. Here you go. Beginning, middle, end. And you're handed that and every other book you've been handed at this point works as a singular piece. If it's all in the same cover, it is a singular piece that is trying to say a singular thing. And you're supposed to read it front to back and come up with things, come up with themes. If you are a Christian, you then get a fun little appendix addendum that says, wait, there's more. And this one, instead of ending with Malachi as the last great prophet, ends with John the Revelator seeing distantly into the future. So you have a book that starts with creation and ends with the new rebirth of Earth as a celestialized, glorified place that becomes the very heaven that we've been striving for. Right. It's a really great thematic sandwich that you're like, ah, finally, I got the real ending. And then if you are Muslim, you say, gosh, that was all so interesting and great. But I mean, God's not going to stop talking to us in the year 33 or year 100 at best. God's going to come back and talk to a new prophet named Muhammad and give us a new book of scripture called the Quran that will add more context onto the God of the whole world, the God that the Jews worship, the God that the Christians worship, the God that we, the Muslims worship. And then in that same tradition, if you, like myself, are a Mormon, you believe again, God says, hey, I'm not done talking. You have new things to worry about, new things to think about. And there are even more addendums of scripture added onto that canon. And when you start looking at it in that pattern, you can see how this book grows from Oh, well, this is all the scripture we have. Oh, well, here's some new stuff. Oh, well, here's some new stuff. And what, here's some new stuff. And what the mistake that's made by each group is assuming now 
all of these things are part of this same linear canon that are all saying the exact same things, even though they're coming to us at different from different people at different times. And the reality of the Bible is that it was that way from the beginning. First and second Kings were never meant to be attached to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. <laughs> and yet they were. They were smushed together and they contradict each other. I mean, if you really read the Old Testament, first and second Kings tell the exact same story again that first and second Samuel did, but with differences. Now David is the bad guy. That's super weird. What's the Bible trying to tell me here? What the Bible's trying to tell you is that the Bible had dozens of authors that all had very different experiences and relationships with God. And the New Testament is no different. I feel like a lot of people of Christian faith will look at the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament and be like, well, that's a crazy mess. Those are old wacky stories. Anyway, on to our perfect historical record, the New Testament. And the reality of the New Testament, and specifically the reality of the Gospels, is that they were four separate books written by four separate people with four distinct messages that they were trying to tell about Jesus. And what Judas does in this book is very interesting. It plays on the hypocrisy between the texts where you have just quick breakdown. Mark is the earliest of the gospels. It was written by, if I always call them the authors of these, because we really don't know who wrote these. We have copies of copies of copies of copies, but we have books that are attributed to certain people, whether or not you believe that they wrote them, is an interesting rabbit hole to fall down. But just for our own sake, I am going to refer to who the text says, who tradition says wrote the text. Because again, none of these texts say, except Luke, who signed his work, none of them say, I, Mark, have some shit to say. It is just attributed to Mark, the traveling companion of Peter. Peter, a fisherman from Galilee, a hick, was illiterate, didn't know how to write. And so he had his little homeboy, Mark, write down his experience with Jesus. And that is what made Mark. That arrives around 70 AD. So already 40 years after the fact. And it was written as a missionary tract. Mark is meant to be read in one go, out loud, to a group of people to tell you the story of Jesus. And Peter, as someone who lived with Jesus for three straight years, and who often got rebuked by Jesus, had a pretty human view of who Jesus was. Mark's Jesus gets tired. Mark's Jesus gets grumpy. Mark's Jesus wants to quit on the cross. Mark's Jesus is a very human person who had divinity thrust upon them. In Mark's baptism of Jesus, God doesn't say to everyone else, this is my beloved son. He tells Jesus, by the way, you're my kid, and now you've got some stuff to do, and sends Jesus spiraling on this mission. And so you get this, you get this central text, and they go, wow, this is awesome. And Matthew and Luke, or the authors of Matthew and Luke, get a hold of Mark, and they say, you left out some parts. You did a great job, but you left out some parts. And so they copy Mark's work, the skeleton of stories, and then they plug in all of their favorite teachings to get their agenda across. 
There's also a secret fifth book that we've never found. Some people think it's the Gospel of Thomas. I'm not completely sold. It's called Source Q, where Matthew and Luke have things that verbatim copy each other that don't come from Mark. And so they're copying some secret other thing that didn't survive the passage of time. But so if Mark's purpose was to present the life of Jesus as inspiration, Matthew's purpose is to present Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Judas, we see the direct comparison of Abraham and Isaac to God and Jesus. That is something that Matthew did. Matthew, speaking to his primarily Jewish audience, said, hey, this guy Jesus, he is what all of our scriptures have been pointing to. And I am going to take the experiences from his life and his teachings and directly point you to how it fulfills the Old Testament. And that's something fun that Judas does as well, is it shows how Judas fulfills a lot of those same scriptures. Like the scripture from Isaiah about the uh, the poor wayfaring man of grief, right? That is beset upon and mm-hmm. is sent to suffer for humanity. To recast Judas as that character was very interesting. But... So Matthew is like, hey, you know that guy Moses that you love that went up in a mountain and brought down the law? Well, guess what my guy did? He went up into a mountain and he brought down a new law called the Beatitudes. He's like, hey, you know how that guy Moses lifted up a serpent on a cross and it healed everybody? Well, my guy's going to lift himself up on a cross and heal everybody. And Matthew is all about the Old Testament references. Luke is like, that is awesome. But... The church is growing pretty quick. And fun fact, the stinky little guy named Paul just showed up that never even met Jesus. And he's got a lot of opinions and he keeps converting his dang ass friends that aren't even Jewish. And it's a whole big drama that we're dealing with here. So somebody has got to write the version of the gospel for the Gentiles because Paul keeps bringing them to the party. So we might as well write that version for them. And so Luke's gospel is the gospel for the Gentiles, but also for the poor, for the women, for the outcasts. Everybody that Matthew and Mark were like, I mean, we don't care about them. Jesus came for the Jewish dudes. Luke is like, well, you were all very mean to me because I was a tax collector. I do. I like the minority cast in ancient Judaism was like women, lepers, and tax collectors. I personally think that we should push tax collectors back into the outside of community and i'm just kidding but so (laughs) that's what the teen lgbt is collector (laughs) and so luke the tax collector is like i sure know what it feels like to have religion not feel like it's for you and jesus specifically came to me and invited me into the group and so my gospel is going to be the one that invites everybody in so like the good samaritan comes from luke that is a story that jesus taught that luke really resonated with And a lot of those, like Jesus performs the miracle of the loaves and fishes twice in Luke because he does it for a Jewish crowd. And then he goes, we got to do it for the Gentiles too. And he does it for the Gentiles too. And then those three gospels, they're called the synoptic gospels. Sin meaning same, optic meaning viewpoint, because they are all told from the same basic viewpoint. They copied Mark's work and then they added their own special spice to whoever their audience was supposed to be. They were never meant to be read together. There was no assumption that if you read Luke, you were going to read any of the either two and vice versa. All of them were separate texts that went out to the wind. And then the author of John, who never names himself as John. They're the beloved disciple. 
One of my favorite dramatic readings is that it was Mary Magdalene that wrote that gospel. That's one that has always been very interesting to me. The whole it was John is that in Matthew, we know that John and Peter race to go see Jesus at the tomb. Also, by the way, fun fact, Jesus never comes back after being resurrected in Mark. Mark ends on a cliffhanger that some monk in like 500 was annoyed about. And so he went back and wrote a new little addendum, like what the rest happened. But Mark's original gospel ends with them (laughs) opening up the tomb and it's empty. Because again, it was meant to be a play that invited you to come find out more. And so they end on a cliffhanger. They're like, and they opened it and there was nothing there. And people are like, (gasps) they're like, anyway, come to church. We'll teach you more. Um, if they did that when I went to church, I would have kept coming. Goodness. <laughs> they need a little spice. Surprise! He's not there. Surprise! <laughs> Big crazy subversion! I can't wait for... He was not lying! He's not dead! He is alive! We've been in the talk of the town. Gosh, I can't wait for church season two. <laughs> wait till you hear about the Book of Mormon. <laughs> That's church season three. Um, <laughs> no! I'm scared. <laughs> New Testament. I heard the writing dropped off for that one. Hey, now. Hey, now. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. But John, or the author of John, comes along. Mm-hmm. And oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't tell you the funny thing. So Matthew says that Luke, that Peter and John race up to go see the tomb. And in John, it's like, and then Peter and the delov- beloved disciple they raced to go see Jesus and the beloved disciple smoked his ass so much faster, so much cooler. Also more handsome arrived at Jesus first. Anyway, back to, <laughs> I was like, Oh, we found who the author is all this anonymous. Also making your anonymous pseudonym, the beloved disciple is the funniest thing that anyone's ever done. Like, yeah, you had the 11 <laughs> disciples who all name and then the beloved one whom Jesus loved. <laughs> the sexiest one with the, the really cute ass. one with nice <laughs> toes. What are you talking about, John? <laughs> but John comes along significantly after the fact. So the other three gospels are written as Christianity is being established as a religion. There is an argument to be made that there were no Christians before Paul. There were followers of Jesus And then Paul created a church for everyone else that didn't immediately know Jesus or immediately know someone who knew Jesus to come and worship Jesus, thus inventing Christianity. And John writes his gospel after Christianity has been established and after the belief that not only was Jesus a great prophet and the son of God, he was God. He was divine. He was everything. And so John's gospel is where a lot of your stickiness starts to come in because John's gospel has a very divine Jesus that is in opposition to the other three gospels where in the other three gospels, Jesus actually says it's a secret that he performs miracles and his God's son. And in John, he pulls up and kicks the temple door down and is like, what's up? It's me. Number one, boy, God's son. All we do is win, win. And there he's like throwing money around. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> He's like, very publicly, I am the son of God. There's a part in John where like, who do you think you are? And he quotes himself, according to him, but to everyone else, he quotes God in Exodus. And he says, I am, which is like when Moses asked God, like, what's your name? And God says, I am that I am, which is a mistranslation 
because I am is one letter off from what God's name is from the Tetragrammaton. But that, I mean, by the time of Jesus, that typo had happened. So he quotes the typo and they're all like, this guy just said he's God. This guy is crazy. We got to kill him. And word. So then this stickiness arrives where all of a sudden you have had the very human gospels about a man that all these people knew, the greatest man they ever knew, according to them. And then all of a sudden you have this text that says, well, all of this was perfect and planned out and divine from the very beginning. We somehow went from a guy who, when he was told that he was the son of God, had a panic attack and ran out into the woods and starved himself for 40 days to someone who pulls up to the Sanhedrin in the temple and is like, by the way, I'm God. Not even the son of God. I am God. And I think Judas finds a lot of its footing in that stickiness that was created by the way the gospels rolled out in saying, how is this fair that I was part of God's larger agenda if God is perfect, if all this was planned out from the beginning. And I just, I think it came to a really interesting resolution to that question of how could you have put me into this role that I have really resonated with. Um, So there is a, a Christian thinker named Neil Maxwell that was very into the cosmos, very into science, right? He talked about the precision Mm -hmm. of the science necessary to get the star to appear in Bethlehem at the right moment of Jesus's birth and conception, or not conception, Jesus's birth to lead the wise men there, right? He's like, if you really think about that with our understanding of how light travels, how the cosmos work, millions of years before any of this happened, God had to get a star started in a distant galaxy so that the light would travel to us at the rate that all of a sudden it shone at Jesus's birth. He said, if God puts that much thought into the placement of a star, think about how much thought he has put into where he has placed you in the orbits of your life and the effects that you can have. I've always really liked that thought. And I feel like that is some of the thesis of Judas that Mm -hmm. Judas in this book and a lot of this is extra biblical. Like there is no scripture that says Judas is down in hell teaching people. But this book works off that thesis that while you may not understand your narrative or your role in it, God is putting you exactly where you are supposed to be. Not because it has been predetermined what you are, but because God as an omniscient being knows your beginning and end. God is not making you do any of these things, but is not bound by time. And so knows and puts you where you are going to do the most good and fulfill your role. And within my theology, I believe in a God who loves all of his children. And I think a lot of the Mm -hmm. villains of the Bible are villains because the authors of the book of scripture that they're from needed a villain for their story. I have never met a villain in my life. I have met people who have made me angry, people I have butted heads with. But ultimately, they are good people, just like I am a good person that are trying to do their best. But if someone was going to rewrite my life as a fable for humanity, they absolutely would pick a good guy and a bad guy. And I think sometimes in our desire to 
treat the Bible not as a collection of stories and fables passed down to us, but as the literal history of the universe, we find ourselves in conundrums that don't need to be there in the first place. Lot's wife is a story like Orpheus. You look at Greek myths and we have someone else who looked back after they weren't meant to and their life was ruined, right? The Bible has that same story again. Why is one of those a cautionary tale? They're like, oh, this is about this. And the other one has to be like, and that's why we hate women and gay people. Because God turns someone to salt. Let's take a step back. Let's assess these stories as the Mm -hmm. cautionary tales and fables that they are. They can still be significant to you. It doesn't have to be real history to be spiritually significant. And that was like one of my biggest takeaways from getting my degree. But I have spoken a lot. I absolutely need to turn the time back over. Thank you for humoring me. No, I I really appreciate it. That was the um that was the part I was most looking forward to this week. So, thank you for all of your wonderful wisdom and for helping illustrate all of that. I really appreciate it. I think thinking about some of the things you said, I think the the ending of Judas really resonated to me because I like the aspect of like as someone who's definitely seen a lot of religious hatred in my life, the idea that just by existing, I'm the villain of someone else's story. It's reassuring to have that idea where it's like, even if you're the quote unquote villain of someone else's story, it doesn't mean that you are that, that bad person. Do you still have that purpose? You can still do good. And it's, I really liked where it's like, even though this is like a loose adaptation with a lot of just like, you know, speculation and being like, this would be a nice ending for this character. If I could write the perfect ending for this character who did not get the perfect ending, this is what I would do. I I like it from that aspect because it's, it really plays into something that's really strong in my faith where it's like, I don't believe that anyone is inherently evil. I think that people can be the product of their world and their times and that can lead them down dark paths, but I don't think anyone wants to be that bad person. And I like the idea that even then there's a purpose for someone like that. And it's it's just something that makes me personally feel a lot better. Because, you know, just thinking about existence sometimes can be very, very overwhelming. And the idea that things will work out is always very, very comforting, especially at times where things feel very um tumultuous that's the perfect word for it i'm gonna pass it over to lexi now (laughs) why would you do that (laughs) because i saw you were you were distracted for a second so i'm like oh pass it yeah yeah i was gonna just just gonna sneeze over here oh i have to tell the story of my entire being (laughs) it has nothing to do with the story other than the fact of the name when I was like four, okay, we, our house that we grew up in, the garage was like a split level. So like you drive in and then there was like stairs up into the kitchen and there was like a, a landing where we like put our backpacks and like our coats and shoes and stuff. And my dad had storage bins under that landing. Like he would pull stuff out and go through the boxes, you know. And he had a box full of like old snow clothes for him to wear snowmobiling. 
And one time I was standing on top of said stairs and he was underneath. So I could like look down and look at what he was doing. And he pulled out this box and a mouse jumped out. And I jumped like 17 feet in the air and said, Judas Priest! And like ran inside. And it's like my parents' favorite story in the world because none of them have ever That's said that before. That's not a family saying. They don't know where you I got it. don't say that. It's not something we say. So when a five-year-old goes, like, not in like a bad way, but just like, where did you get that? Where did you, where, how'd you learn that? <laughs> just took off running. It was great. My mom's, mom's favorite story to tell. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> You listen to Painkiller once, and it's just you never, yeah. never the same again. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Thank you, thank you for that story. Yeah, that that was my my story. I'm imagining like a literal like comic Calvin and Hobbes seventeen yeah, foot yeah, literally like seventeen feet in the air, like gone back into the house. Uh, I, just, I don't get why mice are scary. I need to. I don't know either. They're cute, <laughs> but not when they come running at you. Speedy. I don't know. That's when you get down and you let that's you embrace the mouse. You hug the mouse. And then they bite you. But then you I'm the person who, who goes out and catches snakes for fun. So I really you don't bought in, that. You bought into do the that. Disney propaganda. Mickey is a nickname. I am no friend of Michael <laughs> no, I Mouse. Think it's the, I think it's Michael Mouse can stay Mouse. in his office. <laughs> Mice are not our friends. Don't listen to the corporate overlords. So, no, I definitely didn't buy into the um, the Disney propaganda. I did buy into the Steve Irwin propaganda, though, where it's uh, like, yeah, I could touch a crocodile if I wanted to. Think, yeah. I, I know the there's steps. Any, <laughs> any sort of like latent adaptation from the plague that makes us scared of rodents? Like, do you think that. Like, yeah, like an instinctual fear. fear of the thing that carried like the bubonic like... plague. Like, even though it it's not there anymore. Probably. That's the only explanation I could ever come up with, but it's probably not true. I would say yes, because I was always told, don't let them get you. They'll bite you and they'll give you rabies. So probably. But also, I I don't know a lot, even as a biologist, I don't know a lot about how genetic instinction works. I don't know how that gets passed down, how those traits get selected through natural selection. You know what I actually know what a bunch of biologists that know a ton of things about? If we search the hashtag TERF, there are so many biologists that just know (laughs) we should ask them. Because I mean, they really Shit. paid no, attention you're right. in class. They um, man, they can they can literally map the entire human it was genome crazy for you. Actually, a, they <laughs> with a snap. Believe it or not, they're actually a huge fan of the book. I'm going to quote from too. But just like they're experts oh, in no. biology, they uh, they're huge experts in the Bible and biblical scholarship. They poof, they nail it every oh, yeah. time. <laughs> they're my favorites. I, I listen on tr- my best. The only reason I'm still on Twitter is so I can have people who got C's in middle school biology tell me that I don't understand how genes work. That's that's my favorite. What do you mean? That my was favorite me. pastime. In your comments, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't gonna say anything. I was gonna let it slide. But since you want to bring it up now, um, you're my Judas. <laughs> you're now my Judas. <laughs> I am the villain of this podcast. Let's be real. I had to be called to be woken up this morning, like Sunday morning church. <laughs> True. Lex, do you have any thoughts about Judas's finale in this? Like the role that Judas ends up playing in God's story? I feel like it was a very good wrap up to the story. I feel like I like to think I like to think of someone who 
was surrounded by Jesus, was with him throughout his story, realizing like, oh, I made a mistake. I did this thing and it's not who I am. And I have carried around this much hate for an individual that didn't necessarily deserve it. So I want to do my part in teaching and making things better at the end. Like that's kind of what I got. Like I can do what I can from my position right now. So I liked it. I thought it was nice. I thought overall the entire comic was very nice. Mm -hmm. I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about some of the art depictions because I think oh. I keep thinking back to the scene where Jesus takes on literally all the sins and they're just like coming insane. out of him. It was any any moment in this book where it's like we need to take a full splash page. It it does it so well and so perfectly. And you're like, yes, I'm so glad you did that. Mm-hmm. The colors jump. I think um it's it's not my favorite because it's it's perfect, but there's the one panel where Jesus kind of looks like he's going Super Saiyan, and I really I really got to chuckle out of that because he's got like the red Superman laser eyes going on. It's like, I understand what you're going for, but also out of context, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> That's what they believe in in Alabama. Love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lucifer's like shit talking to me. He's like, back up or I'm going to Kamehameha you or whatever it is. I don't know. I've never, I've never done a Dragon Ball in my life. I've actually thought about my next big read through in four years from now mm-hmm. on the show. We might do some Dragon Ball Z because I've always wanted to read it. Okay. Wolf. Yeah. My next big read through, I promise my friend that I'm actually going to read some oh, One Piece. No. I'm like, listen, I know there's a billion trillion chapters. I'll read like 10. Oh. And if it hooks me, then shit, I, it was going to happen. I'm destined. But, you know, we'll we'll give it a shot. We'll give and it a fair shake. I'm going to have three weeks without you, without <laughs> you dorks. So I got to find something to pass the time. I like it. Um, I... I found it very interesting that a lot of this book, it's like thematic resonance was built on this idea Mm -hmm. that God cares enough about the people in hell to send someone to minister to them. Right. I think that's pretty cool, Mm -hmm. significant thing that Judas put forward. And I've been really on the fence about this because believe it or not, as eager as I am to talk about biblical scholarship, I actually do try not to shove my own like religious, unique theological beliefs down people's throats. I know that's not super their mm-hmm. thing. So if you are not interested at all in learning a little bit of Mormon theology, skip ahead five minutes. It's okay. But this is something Alexis like almost skipped five minutes ahead. <laughs> I'm just personally no, my skip- I'm gonna get I couldn't know if I was on mute. <laughs> Sorry. Um <laughs> There's something I really like that I learned from my own religion that I have not seen in any other Christian faiths is built out of First uh, Peter chapter three verse nineteen and twenty, right? So you and I'm reading from the NRSV version of the Bible. That is the Scholar's Bible. If ever you're like, what's the most right Bible? NRSV. And this is talking about Jesus, obviously. It says, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And it's just a short little passage, but Peter talking about the time between 
Jesus' death and his resurrection, that three-day period, he says that Jesus went to the spirits in prison, the spirits in hell, and he preached to them and he gave them a chance. The people that didn't listen, he specifically cites like all the way back in Noah's time. like, And that, that sort of shorthand in the Bible, they're known as like the, the most wicked generation of all time, right? The people that were so bad, they had to just reset the earth. They had to hard reset, hit the button, <laughs> flood the earth to start over. Yeah. So like the... <laughs> God took out the cartridge, blew yeah, it, and then like put it back the in. Yeah, like the most wicked people in yeah. the Bible is who Peter said Jesus went and gave another chance to. And in Mormon theology, there is a belief that all people are extended that same grace. Like, God isn't going to give up on you. There isn't really a perception of hell within Mormon faith. Because no matter where you are when you leave this life, like God will continue to reach out to you. God will minister to you. God will pull you <laughs> kicking and screaming towards heaven and like you will end up where you want to be. And I have, that's always really resonated with me. Like I absolutely resonate with that scripture and the idea that Jesus doesn't see death as a hard line of like, oh man, well, I, I loved you until in your eternal grand scheme of life, like you were alive before this, you will be alive after this. You are an eternal being. But in that 80 years, you just happen to stop taking a breath in your mortal body. That's when I stopped loving you, believe it or not. All done. <laughs> I, I just, that does not resonate with me. And so obviously that isn't the religious background that the book Judas is coming from, but that those same instincts are at play. And I, I felt strongly while reading this, I was like, I'm so grateful that this is something that I can look to the New Testament for. I can look to, at a life of belief at the idea that this is very comforting idea that God has not turned his back on you. God will not forget you. God will continue mm -hmm. to go out after you. And so I just thought that was worth sharing. I, I was, like I said, I was a little on the fence yeah. about it, but made me happy. And that, again, that was first Peter chapter three. And I read verses 18 through 19 or I'm sorry, 18 through 20. I'm glad you shared yeah. it. Yeah. Because I... Uh, the, the idea of preaching hellfire has never, ever stuck with me for basically the same reason. Where it's like, I I can't buy the fact that the, the quote-unquote loving God is like, well, you know what, son? You did something... You did something pretty bad. You, um... You... You went to porn.com that one time. Oh, no! And, um... That's it. <laughs> You're Burn done. in hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah. So I, it's like, I, I like that idea. I like that. It's so theology. baked into Christianity that we should just preach fear. Like even mm -hmm. within Mormon faith, we theologically do not believe in hell. And yet I still have sat across from the crusty, dusty old man of Alexis's story. And they've been like, mm -hmm. if you don't repent soon, you... You're in for a hard time. I was like, that isn't even our theology. What are you talking about? Why are you inventing? See, I didn't even know that. I was like, why theology. are you inventing hell? It's not in our books. Why are you inventing it? It's like, well, all the other Christians yeah. sure are having a good time with it. So I wish they wouldn't. Sure love to use it. Look, the, the, the idea of hell sure has 
um, staying power for people that are afraid. It's it got, it's a huge motivator for people that don't want to be quote quote unquote tortured forever. It's like you want demons to to stab you in the balls to stab you in the tits. You better be good. That's that's that that's your option. Be good, or you know, it's um. I'm going to show you that Tom and Jerry cartoon where Tom goes to hell. You don't want to. You don't want that. <laughs> I can't believe that was a thing they showed children. Today, people are like, "Oh, two guys kissed." Oh no. It's like, let's go back and watch Tom and Jerry, where Tom literally goes to hell and gets baked into yeah. a stew. That was fun. I think, honestly, a lot of the fear-mongering in Christian religion is born out of the organization not wanting to actually live up to its message of hope, right? Because if you look at the message mm-hmm. of Jesus, it is that everyone is worthy, everyone deserves love, and it is the responsibility of the community, and this is where we really lose America, to provide for those people. When you look at acts, I hate to break it to you, America, they're practicing communism. The only people that Jesus says will have a hard time getting into heaven are rich people. There is never a time when Jesus says, if you're gay, you don't get to come to heaven. There are almost a dozen times that Jesus says, if you are rich, good luck. He said it is harder. Looks like I get to go to heaven. (laughs) (laughs) What's up, Elon Musk? Where are you at? Jesus said, eat the rich. Like, I'm sorry. It's in your book. Like, read your New Testament. If you can Mm -hmm. read the New Testament, and not with your, like, going, looking for whatever it is, but really read the text for what it is, and you can leave anything other than a commie, I'm sorry. Read it again. Like, capitalism... (laughs) is the antithesis to Christianity and the idea that they've become wed in America is devastating. And so when you can't actually preach what God preaches in your book, you have to invent your own fear tactics to keep that money flowing in. Because it's pretty easy to get people to donate money to support your religion if you actually are using that money to help people. People want to help people. But if you're like, oh, man, we need money to build a new megachurch or to buy a new jet. Or to buy a new touchdown yeah, Jesus. To buy a new touchdown. Wait, listen, I would donate to touchdown Jesus. That was great. But <laughs> well, touchdown Jesus needs it because he's burned down twice. <laughs> he rose again. <laughs> Didn't he? He's got a lightning rod now. <laughs> again, going to keep rising over and over. Ohio got to keep learning this lesson. Um, <laughs> but so if people don't want. To, there's nothing inside of humanity that's like, oh, man, I should help you be more rich. And so you have to use fear tactics. You have to use the ways of the world that Jesus did not. So that was kind of a, a little ramble-tamble tangent there at the end. but I think it's justified. I think it's important. Like if you read Judas and you can still somehow read the Bible looking for who you get to make the villain, like assess your relationship mm-hmm. with the Bible. That is not what this book's about. Yeah. The Bible with context is such a different beast than the Bible without context. Yeah. I do feel the need to clarify, unless you're reading Joshua, that book is very much about who gets to be the bad guy. So, but none of us, sounds, none of us have fun. been called to commit genocide in Israel. So. Mm. Wait, you, you missed that call? I got that Stop. last week. <laughs> it was a toll-free number. 
that's another like <laughs> people that are like the Bible is the unerring word of God. I was like, all right, explain mm-hmm. the talking donkey. That's my first favorite thing to yeah. get to. Second, explain the book of Josh. I love Doom Patrol. The book Joshua. What that all about? That is neither here nor there. Should we do questions? <sighs> yes. Absolutely. Do you want me to go first on this long one? Yes. All yes. Right. Ed writes <clears throat> in and says, Hello, collective. Here are my questions for Judas. This is more for Dallas because my knowledge of theology goes. Those two classes I took in college, that Bible college class where the only thing mm-hmm. I remember is Job? Real? Eh. <laughs> That's true. Job is kind of eh. Uh, TBD depends on who you ask. That one church history class learning about church fuck-ups and remembering that patriarchy nice. and translations skew things. Yes, they do. Hell Every yeah. mean thing mm-hmm. that Paul said about women was written by someone later. Just fun fact. All those like women shouldn't talk in church scriptures that people like to throw out every once in a while. 400 AD. Tops. From someone. I should have whipped that out when they asked me to give a talk. Women should AD. not speak. Sorry, women can't talk in church. You would then also have to wear head wrappings. Except no. Um, we we love to cherry pick. So just cherry pick whatever scripture you want there. Yeah, exactly. the, the one scripture, the one scripture that they use that says man should not lie with man immediately proceeds. Make your wife sleep outside in a tent when she's menstruating. I'm not advocating for making women sleep outside when they're menstruating. But really, those are presented with the same severity. And one of those we don't follow. And mm-hmm. one of them. What if we all just had big camping sleepovers? Going out to the lady tent. <laughs> see you in a while. <laughs> Get a little community, like goodbye. Ugh. Everyone gets s'mores, and yes, it's fantastic. Um, Ed says, "So I'd like to hear the thoughts of someone qualified to speak on this." I, I don't know if that's me, but we'll try. I always found Judas being the scapegoat for the crucifixion to be kind of missing the forest for the trees because a, Jesus was going to be crucified anyway. That was his mission statement. When Peter said that can't happen, Jesus rebuked him. So he is getting blamed for something that was always going to happen. That is true. Judas's overall role in the Passion Weekend was letting the Sanhedrin, who were already plotting Jesus's death, know where Jesus was. Like in the grand cosmos, the idea that Judas is a greater villain to many than Caiaphas is crazy. Could be name recognition here. But again, I think Caiaphas gets called out more often in the New Testament. Jesus was going to die either way. Machinations had already begun to get him killed because of his teachings against the Sanhedrin. So you are correct, Ed. B. Judas wasn't the only one to betray him. Peter denied him three times and a rooster got involved. Or in the KJV, a cock got involved. Do with that what you will. In Luke, two cocks got involved. So, I mean, that's a, that's a different story. Um, yeah, they... Keep talking so so much shit about gay people. This is insane. Um, there was a whole thing about it. At least Judas got paid. <laughs> Peter did it for free. Listen, Judas was in <laughs> Judas was in her reputation era. Frankly, she said, "I did something bad." <laughs> um, yeah, Judas Judas did get paid uh, a day's wage <clears throat> to betray Jesus, and my favorite. Is how often Peter gets 
yelled at. If you're like, what's an interesting read through of the New Testament? <laughs> read through and every time Peter gets just owned by Jesus, give it a little highlight and you'll start to be like, this might be the most faithful man alive. Because if my friends talk to me this way, <laughs> goodness he not gracious, betray? if anyone could betray him, Peter. <laughs> and he did. You're right, Ed. He did. He betrayed Jesus. And again, it's this is leaning into the idea that we want a villain for this story. When the story that's being presented is that Jesus, all of Jesus's allies slowly go away until he is left alone mm-hmm. to take all of this on. One thing I did disagree with was the the premise. And I think the book itself kind of like shed light on how Judas and Lucifer were being weenies, but that like until Jesus was in hell, he did not understand what it was to have a hard life. Like, I, I disagree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, uh, I think that guy had a pretty hard life and he held strong except for when he didn't in Mark. Um, it also puts a point and shame that guy instead of reflect on yourself and be better, which is part of the reason why I wasn't initially interested in this book. Wasn't until Anne tweeted about it that I wanted to check it out because I trust her judgment. How do you think the book addresses these concerns? Um, I think medium. What do you guys think? How do you feel like this book does with wrestling with the character Judas? It's, I feel like there's a lot it says, but just reading Ed's questions, it feels like there's a lot it could have said more. Like if this book had been twice as long, I still don't think we would have gotten all the answers to all the questions we have. But just talking about the last one, like it feels like this is just a point. He's always been the point in shame that guy character. I feel like the book does address that a bit where he's like, yeah, no one else ever takes my name again. I'm the villain, but you know what? I'm still here doing my, doing my shit. So anyone, it's like, cause it, I've seen that so often the the point and blame some mentality. Like I've seen so often people um, talking about every, every time gay people get more rights. I remember after the passage in 2015, where gay people could finally get married nationwide happened. And people were like, Oh, the wrath of God is going to come now. He's going to Sodom and Gomorrah our asses. And it's just people. I've seen it so often where people love to make someone else the villain because I think it makes them more comfortable ignoring their own shortcomings. He that is without sin among you, it's, let him first cast a stone. Yeah. It's crazy. There's like, there's a line in there about that. No one ever talks about it. No one ever talks about those. I wonder why. It's curious. But I think the book does a pretty good job addressing at least that concern. I agree interesting to have peter have at least or not um peter have judas have one like grumpy panel where he's like well peter got off free with with, with peter at this isn't a party until peter gets here like peter get your ass down here right now i will drag you down I drag if you i down have myself Walk call up, me Patty. sam maybe because i'm gonna drag you to hell i think <laughs> if i could be a fly on a wall for one conversation in history it would be mm-hmm. the conversation that is alluded to in the book of Acts between Peter and Jesus that turns Peter from the man who denied Jesus three times into the stalwart leader of Christianity that would go all the way to Rome and be crucified upside down for his faith. Like, what was said? And I have to 
I have to believe that, I mean, one of the big tragedies of Judas's story is that he very quickly realizes what he did. And I mean, at the beginning of this book, we see Judas hangs himself because of the guilt of what he did. And I, I can't imagine that Jesus would extend his grace to Peter in that same way and not do the same for Judas. Like we know from first Peter that Jesus went down and spoke with the deceased, the bad. This is completely extra biblical, but I, I can't imagine Jesus would have such a stirring conversation with Peter that's alluded to and not have a similar conversation with Judas. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on with Judas, um, but I know that Jesus still loved him. You know, he, we have evidence of him loving all the other fickle friends that he had. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, Lex? No. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) No, I agree. It's it's a lot. This one's a lot. Mm -hmm. All right. Question number two from Mr. Ed. When is a time a dear comrade have you had an epic betrayal? For me, it's Anne hiding the fact that she's French. I only found out when she recommended the (laughs) French All-Star Superman. Also, it's in the name France. I'm so mad that you remember that. That's, listen, that wasn't, I got Judas by comicsology actually, because it's like, I just clicked on, I was reading the English version of the comic. I'm like, share this comic. And it's like, you mean the French version, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, no, no comicsology. I didn't. But now Ed has a conspiracy theory about me, which is great because it can add on to his other conspiracy theories about me. This is just, listen, Ed, I can see through your game. This is just your excuse to type in a pun in the question. You're not slick. I understand. You're really, really good at these, but watch your, you you can call me a lot of things. Never call me French. I don't know why I'm offended by that, but never call me French. How about you, Alexis? Do you have any funny betrayal stories? Oh, I don't know. I feel like I had one the other day, but I can't remember it now. Damn, come back to me. Come back to me. I really feel like I have one. I can't think of a time someone betrayed me. Oh, psych. Two weeks ago, my wife's like, hey, you never have any snacks around the house. And then you're always like, I'm hungry. We all have any snacks. Do you want any snacks? And so I ordered all these snacks with our groceries. And then that little woman proceeded to eat all my snacks throughout the week. And so then when I did get to the time where I went, I'm hungry. Oh, I got my own snacks. I opened up the freezer and all my pizza rolls were gone. She got herself all these little healthy snacks and then ate all my junk food snacks anyway. Because you know what sounds way better than an apple all the time? Pizza rolls. That was my recent betrayal. My wife eating all my pizza rolls and then being like, tee And I was like, girl, I love you, but what the hell? Who does that to a man? <laughs> Who tells him, make sure to order your own snacks. We're going to solve this problem and then creates the problem again. It was her plan from the get-go. You, that was, it was destiny and you fell one. for it. <laughs> love that. All right. Question number three. When have you betrayed someone and the results were hilarious? In your opinion. Oh, God. You betrayed God. (laughs) (laughs) said, hey, listen, I might be trans and God is like, (gasps) you don't think I knew? (laughs) Who could have seen this coming? God is like, you don't think I knew? 
you want me god's like you want me to pull up how many times you watch the little mermaid as a kid we we knew we knew and are you going to the live action one be honest probably not <sighs> i i lost my my interest in the live action movies i don't blame you same yeah they made they made scuttled not a seagull and i feel like it's not appropriate but anyway <laughs> At least that's the line. Mine is the fish has lips. I can't do fish lips. Oh, don't even get me started on flounder. Oof, oof. I found a um a, a quote unquote realistic um Sebastian where it keeps his animated design but adds real textures and it's glorious. It is Dude, perfection. Why don't they just do that? Because it's Not nightmare fuel. But <laughs> anyway. I'm gonna send you that picture later. You'll understand. Fair. I have a betrayal story. Hmm. Oh, please. So, when I was in high school, I was a bit of a sleazebag. I'll admit it. And my senior year, I had this childhood friend that had definitely, like, worn out his welcome. I kind of realized, like, junior year of high school, like, wait, you bring me down a lot to make yourself, like, cooler and bigger. Like, I kind of am, like, you're punching bag friend that's not very fun and so i just kind of like moved on and started making some other friends but we still were like tangentially together and he kept like pulling me back into his clutches and i kept being like i don't like myself when i'm around you i like this other life i'm living now and i keep getting like sucked back into your weird little we're in a competition as friends world and my villainous ass i am a bad guy in this story was like you know he's got a really pretty girlfriend and so i hooked up with his girlfriend because i knew that was a line that would end our friendship so i did that and when he found out he was so mad and he found out and he came we were having a fight night which some of my friends did to make money we bought some boxing gloves and then we would let people who had beef but didn't want to get in trouble at school come over to our friend's house whose dad was always out of town and we would have backyard fist fights with boxing gloves to like help people get get their beef out. And so that friend showed up and was like, I'm here to fight Dallas because I just found out he hooked up with my girlfriend. And homeboy, we hadn't hung out a ton recently. And I had a huge growth spurt between junior year and senior year. And uh, he became a big boy. We went from about the same size to about <laughs> me being a foot taller and like 80 pounds heavier. And uh, that was a good fight. For me, not for him. But uh, I was Judas. I was Judas Dang. in that story. Sorry to that friend. I know you ain't listening to this, but uh, I could have gone a more emotionally mature way. I'm of get ending that friendship. Just look in Ohio, we put chili and spaghetti. In Utah, you oh. have background and fight clubs. Backyard fight club. The craziest were always when the girls <laughs> wanted to fight. Because girls don't play defense, in my experience. Scary. It was like rock'em, sock'em robots. No. Brutal. <laughs> Brutal. Anyone else have any betrayal stories, or should we move on? Um, I can't think of any, because I'm a perfect angel who's never done anything wrong. That's very true. You are. Sweet angel, baby. Um, yeah, that dog says, <laughs> listen, you betrayed me with this lunch right now. It's true. It's true. Uh, I have one. Uh, mm-hmm. When I also evil master plan, this was my sophomore year of high school. I was kind of like seeing this one guy, you know, like, you know, we'd see each other making out with each other. Um, anyway, 
my sophomore year of high school and I was obsessed with him. I was like, you are so fun. You're a football player. You're not really that cute, but you're really fun to kiss. And I was like, we should date. And he was like, I don't know. Like, I'm kind of having fun just doing this. And I was like, yeah, well, true, but we should date. And he was like, nah, I'm okay. And then I was like, there has to be a reason. And so I, in my little sneaky mind, I can't remember exactly how I found out, but I found out there was two other me's in this situation, two other sophomore girls. And it was a betrayal on me to him because I went and hunted down all these girls and then the next time he texted me to make out, we were all sitting in the car when I picked him up. <gasps> and the kids is how I met Casey Cooper. <laughs> we, my best friend for the next three years. She was one of the other girls. That's crazy. Right. Yeah, and then he just closed the door and went back into his house. It was so funny. <laughs> Villain. Yeah, so we're bad people. Yeah. <laughs> we're villains out here in Utah. If I can think of a betrayal story, I will I will post it. I just my brain is not thinking of anything at the moment. It's like you didn't go to high school. You didn't listen, you didn't I didn't do have anything. a prefrontal ro- lobe at that point. <laughs> okay. It hasn't <laughs> developed. <laughs> I'm like a little I was thinking with my other lobe, okay? I did. That's why mine was evil. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to read Owen Sailor's question? I can. Okay, let's see. <clears throat> Dear Comics Collective, for this, for me, this episode, I have two questions. For my first question, do you think this book is one of the best examples of when a writer takes a character from an already established work and expands that character by making the story about them? For my second, this one is for Dallas to flex his degree and something that has in always interested me how is it the four gospels matthew mark luke and john each have different interpretations of the crucifixion and eventual resurrection of jesus i mean the broad strokes of the story remain the same but the details of each book are different from each other like jesus final words before dying p.s i find it really fascinating how jeff loveness wrote the story and would later go on to write other projects like a nova solo book between sam alexander and richard Ryder, and even go on to write quantum quantum mania and the upcoming kang dynasty films for marvel i just think that's interesting much love Owen. What do you think of that first bit? So, yeah, first question first. Is this the best example of when a writer takes a character from an already established work and expands that character by making the story about them? I think it's really interesting because, I mean, this is like one of the epitome of like, this is a well-known character. Like, Mm -hmm. this is more than just like Spider-Man, you know? (laughs) Everybody writes (laughs) Spider-Man. But yeah, I think it was I think it was interesting and cool. I it's one that's always stuck out to me just because it feels like such a big thing. It was the first time I've ever read a story where someone's tried to do like, hey, I'm gonna fan fiction the Bible a little bit. Let's see what this is like. And I'm like, this can either be really, really cringy and awkward, or this could be something really special. And I thought this was something really special. But I do, there are some times where it's done really well, especially with villains. I like, I'm, it's one of the only times I'm a really big fan of him, but I really liked Brian Azzarello's Luther miniseries. That has a, it still has one of my favorite pages of any comic ever. Because one of the coolest things they do in that is they really try to paint Lex Luthor in a very human light. Um, and they always keep Superman's face in shadow with his laser eyes always glowing, trying to make him look as alien as possible. And it's like, it's it's a version of Luther I don't think is always congruent with other with most other versions that we've seen before, but it's definitely in 
an interesting take on a man who is terrified of someone who is not only better than him, but so much inhumanly stronger than him. And he's having this conversation with Superman where he's just looking out through the window. And he's like, I look at you and I see the, the death of all of our dreams. You are my nightmare. And it's just that close up of his logo. And it's a page that eternally lives in my head. Cause it's just so cool. And I wish a Lex Luthor that interesting and complicated was always the Lex Luthor we got on page. Cause when he is, he is my favorite villain in DC comics. Hell yeah. You ask, is this the best? I would ask you, is this league of extraordinary gentlemen? No, it's not. Next question. <laughs> league of extraordinary gentlemen. Listen, I'm not going to tell you that it ages perfectly. Listen, it is a satire, but sometimes you're like, should you be satire saying this? I don't know if you should. Like, it is definitely all a joke, but sometimes is that your joke to tell, Alan Moore? That is a question for the scholars. But that book hits. I love it. I love it. Problematic fave. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> you a real one. That book rules. For people who don't know, Alan Moore famously who hates when people play with his characters went and got all of the public domain characters like dr jekyll and mr hyde the invisible man captain nemo um the bride of dracula from the book dracula and then this like adventure character who inspired indiana jones who were all in the public domain and he assembles Mm -hmm. them all into a team that goes and fights um bad guys (laughs) They fight the aliens from War of the Worlds, which was very fun. Mm-hmm. And great book. Love it. I liked it better than this, but this was very good. <laughs> <laughs> Say the difference between him adapting them and anyone adapting his work is that he's not dead yet. So that's not it, it's it's a social the, faux pas. True. But everyone else is their creators. They're already dead. So he's like, I, I feel no true. guilt, you know, because they can't come yell at me on Twitter. And that's what it's so. all about. Um, as far as your mm-hmm. question about why the crucifixion is different, it's because the crucifixion is the culmination of whatever themes that gospel is trying to point to. If Mark's theme is that Jesus is a human who became perfect, then his crucifixion having a faltering Jesus who then powers through and triumphs over death is very thematically resonant in if John's gospel is trying to convey the point that Jesus was divine, other, and descended down from heaven to show us the perfect path forward, it makes a lot of sense that his crucifixion ends with a resolute, into your hands I commend my spirit, and then a choice to release his spirit at will. And you can, if you look at the crucifixion, through that lens, understanding the themes of each of the four Gospels, it starts to make it a lot more clear why certain details are provided. And I that's what I was trying to get at earlier in this conversation, is that the broad strokes of the Gospels are all the same. It's the details that can either trip you up or make them so much more enriching. I always, I once made a joke that the gospel that ended with the guy running away naked and screaming from the garden was the bad one. That's Mark, by the way. Someone runs away naked and screaming from the Garden of Gethsemane and Mark. That one has become my favorite one because that's a version of Jesus that I really resonate with. And I think if you look at those details and you view the gospels not as a singular blended up 
choppy biography of Jesus, but rather as four unique tales about the same person, much like we have different runs on Spider-Man that are all great. <laughs> you can like Roger Stern's run. You can like Stan Lee's run. You can like David Michelini's run. You can like Dan Slott's run. They're all very different versions of that same character. Look at the Gospels that way as a comic book fan. Say, oh, I'm going to read Mark's run on Jesus. Oh, I'm going to read Matthew's run on Jesus. I'm going to read John's run on Jesus. That one got a little <laughs> weird, but kind of cool. And harmonize them that way to show different facets of the same person. Yep. And just like Spider-Man runs, sometimes there's a stinky Paul. <laughs> true. True. Perfect. <laughs> the Bible is just the amazing Spider-Man. Everything comes full yeah, circle. Yeah, listen, we told you this was going to stay about the comics. All right. Mm -hmm. Should we read our last question? Yes. Me. It's me. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Judas is the first comic. Well, comic I've read for the first time. Oh, because I was coming up on the pod and damn, it's really good. The thing that hits the hardest about this comic to me is the depiction of hell. From my perspective, the, this comic presents hell as a kind of garbage dump where the villains of history go. Once their role in a hero's story of overcoming is over, it seems to me that these creators are really disturbed by the notion that some people are just evil and ought to be abandoned with no further consideration. That really hits home for me as someone who bristles at the idea that people are driven to do good by the threat of punishment. I'd like to know what you all think of this take of take on hell artistically and as an idea in this story. Particularly, what did you think of Judas' final decision to love all the people who were discarded by God? Thanks, as always, for the show, Kurt. <clears throat> well, Kurt, I, I mean, we kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but um, I personally thought, like, the depiction of hell was super eye-catching. I loved the artwork. I loved the dark, moody colors. Um, and all the different characters kind of having their own story within that. Um, and I really agree with you. Like, I also chafe against the idea of, like, people do good by the idea of the threat of punishment. Like, that's a super mm-hmm. good way to put that. Um, so I agree with you. Like, it's uh, it's a good one. I, I don't know. I think the hell was kind of cool in this one, but that's just me. Maybe I do want to go there. I don't know. <laughs> you heard it here fo- first, Visit. folks. Lexi, like hell's kind of cool. Yeah. That's kind of cool. I always yeah. joke that I'm going to bring my like, family with me. down there? Stop and poke in. Can I, use my, can I use my Hilton points, please? <laughs> I, I, I liked the idea of hell as just like this desolate place that's as, you know, as far away from you know, heaven as you can imagine, barren, rocky. Um, I like the idea that it's not just your typical fiery hellscape. It's it's good to see. And I also, I love the designs of the demons and the creatures there. And I love Lucifer's design too. He's not overly monstrous. He's not overly handsome. Although, shout out Lucifer TV show, you're the goat. Um, he's just, he looks like a dude who who literally fell. He's like, I hit the ground real hard and I never recovered. And it's, from a design perspective, I love everything about it. Um, I also love the way the just kind of broken souls look where they're just like, man, I've seen some shit. It's, I, I thought that was wonderful. And I, I agree. Like the, 
we've talked about we we did talk about that a bit earlier where it's like the idea of just like doing good to be rewarded and to avoid punishment doesn't seem like you're a good person it seems like you're a selfish person and it's that's the way it's always felt to me so i do like the idea where it's like hey the people who are here aren't necessarily you know they they don't necessarily deserve to be here forever this isn't supposed to be the end all be all there should be that chance for redemption and i like i think that final couple pages of judas going through while they're um quoting that one verse in the background that's always always meant a lot to me greater love um, hath no man than this give me a second a man lay down his life for his friends yeah no it was the um blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see god it's a good one. That comes from Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount. Pretty good. It's beautiful. So yeah, I really liked it. Dallas. I thought it was good. I feel like I talked about a lot of these things throughout the course of the episode. Um, Yeah, I feel like if you can take one thing away from Dallas's Bible Corner in this episode, it's that the Bible is a book. It is a book that is significant to a lot of people. But if you approach it as a book and not as the uh, cultural flawless monolith uh, that some people want to make it, you can have a pretty healthy relationship with it. And you, just like with any other book, you can take and leave some bits, have that relationship with the Bible. It has gone through enough hands. Yeah. It is a flawed enough document that if you come across something that you don't like very much, you can like the other parts just the same and go, I don't care about that part. That's okay. Yeah, it's the difference between, like, watching a TV show versus being those aliens from Galaxy Quest who are like, the historical documents. This was all real. Yes. Also, Job is not real. Anyway, let's wrap it up. <laughs> okay, who's who's starting first? Who's reading this? Yes, but I cannot believe you just said that and rolled right into this. Wow, all right. But everybody, if you like our show and want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account, at CMX Collective, or our TikTok account, at the Comics Collective, or you can find each of us at our personal Twitters at Dallas underscore comics, at Ann Comics, and at Lexi Lou underscore comics. If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and give us a five star review, and we will read it off on the show. And finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for the show at the Comics Collective at gmail.com. And. And we'll see y'all next week for what, Av- Dallas? Avengers! Issues 6 through 17 and New Avengers number 7 with Evan. That's all. Love it. Friend of the pod, Ev. Big Ev. It's our first time. Is that our first time in a while where we've actually said, hey, the next episode is one we haven't recorded yet? It's, we don't know how it's going to go. That is true. Yeah. We're recording it tomorrow, weenies. (laughs) It's been a hot minute. It's fun. I got some editing to do this week. Anyway, thanks everybody. Bye. Bye.